Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Welcome to The Long Game with LZ and Leach from the Recount and Acast, where every week we talk about the biggest sports stories and how they impact culture, politics, and business. I'm LZ Granderson. He's Will Leach. He is indeed. And in unusual developments, we have a ton of things to talk about, starting with our top stories of the week. First, we're going to start off by discussing China and its relationship to the sports world. Despite China's human rights violations, many leagues, associations, athletes, and sports-related companies have deep financial interests there. But now that China has seemingly placed tennis star Peng Shui under house arrest after she revealed that she was sexually assaulted by a Chinese party official, the Women's Tennis Association is suspending its business with China until Peng's safety can be verified. Will the NBA and the International Olympic Committee follow suit? Money, 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 money. I hear that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. But let's dig into a much more positive tennis story, Will, shall we? The movie King Richard was just released, and it tells the incredible tale of how sisters Venus and Serena Williams beat overwhelming odds to become two of the greatest tennis players of all time. Some would even say Serena is the greatest of all time. In any case, the movie is really about their controversial father, coach, and advisor, Richard Williams, played by Will Smith, and his monumental role in shaping them to be champions. Now, I want to know, Will, is the journey of the Williams sisters, learning tennis in Compton, learning from their dad who had never played before, them becoming two of the greatest of all time. Is this the greatest sports story of all time? And then we want to analyze the state of Major League Baseball, which seems perhaps a bit precarious right now. You think? The current collective bargaining agreement between players and team owners will expire as of midnight on December 2nd. And these sides are far apart on many contentious issues involving the share of the sport's billions of dollars of yearly revenue. And many observers are predicting the owners will institute a labor lockout if an agreement is not reached in the next week. Since the start of the 2022 season may now be in jeopardy, I think it's fair to wonder, LZ, just what in the hell is baseball doing? 
This podcast is not long enough to talk about that, Will. There is not enough room on the internet (laughs) to discuss that. And then as an extra Thanksgiving bonus, if you heard last week's show, Will and I discussed team building, whether it's wisest to construct a team the most expensive way by signing star veteran players like the LA Rams have done, or by drafting young players and waiting years for them to mature and grow like baseball's Baltimore Oreos, who seems to always be waiting for the players to mature and grow. Well, later on in the show, Rams GM Les Snead is stopping by to continue the discussion from his very hands-on point of view, and you don't want to miss it. We've also got a great This Week in Sports History segment. And we'll finish off the show with our games of the week. But first, Will, I want to know one thing. What is your sports mood right now? This is becoming a pattern, but my sports mood is sad. My sports mood is consistently very again? sad. I know. It's it's Illinois basketball again. The last oh time we gosh. talked, Illinois had lost to Marquette in a shocking game, but they didn't have Kofi Coburn. He had suffered a three-game suspension. He returned last night. They started 23-8. to It was the old Illini again, the ghosts of that demon sister Jean, <laughs> th- that monstrous woman. She is a daughter of Jesus. You I'm need to put saying, some respect on her name. I'm just saying she knows what she did. She knows what she did. The ghosts of Sister Jean were about to be vanquished, and then they fell apart. And so my line, I ranked number five in Ken Palm coming into the year. Matt Norlander, my favorite college basketball writer, had them in his final four coming into the season. Everything was going great. We're two and two now in danger of losing to Bruce Weber, our old coach that we fired three oh, coaches yeah. ago. Listeners will know whether or not they lost that game. I am a sad place. All I need in the world, the one thing I have in this world that is good, I mean, I guess other than my family and stuff, is the <laughs> Illini basketball team. They're good. Finally, I've waited for them to be good forever and now they are bad again. It's very, very frustrating. My sports mood can be summed up in two words, my friend. Free LeBron. Free LeBron. Free LeBron. I I was hoping you were going to go with it. If we could free Britney, we can free LeBron. (laughs) That's all I'm saying, man. Definitely a one-to-one parallel there. (laughs) Here's what I don't understand. Is the league soft or not? Because if the league is soft, then, you know... Why is everyone calling him La Elbow? Why is everyone questioning whether or not he's a dirty player? Whether or not he could, you know, function in the 80s or 90s when it was much more physical. <laughs> I don't I don't understand. Is he soft or is he a thug? Is he yeah. a thug or is he soft? Is he a flopper or is he a hacker? What is it? I don't know. But free LeBron. Yeah, this is the problem with being LeBron is you are whatever people want you to be at that particular moment. If that guy whose name, not only do I not remember right now, I'm not caring to remember. I'm never going to think about this guy again. Hey, he didn't even get elbowed, by the way. Well, whatever happened, he freaked out. Uh-oh, uh-oh, Stewart and LeBron. Stewart is hot, and everybody's coming off now. If he doesn't freak out, LeBron doesn't get suspended. Are we even talking about this? No. He freaked out. Out and I get he, it. He, freaked, he did freak out. I get. It. I have not like. It's been a long time since I've been pummeled in the face that way. It's been an hour. It's been a long day, Elsie. But more to the point, I don't know how I would react necessarily in that situation. That still seemed perhaps dialed a little bit too high. I don't think LeBron you gets know, any of this if that doesn't happen. Yeah, you know, I wasn't tracking his movements the entire game, <laughs> so I'm not going to say he freaked out unprompted because we don't know what they were doing prior to that, right? We don't know if there were cheap shocks exchanged. We don't know if there were words being said up until that moment. We don't know. But based solely upon what we watched the free throw line, oh, dude, freak the hell out. Easy, easy, man. I was just like, dog, like, (laughs) did he talk about your mama? Like, what happened here? (laughs) 
I actually didn't mind the fact he went after LeBron, Will. You know, if you're about that life, then it can't be predicated upon, you know, who you're going to fight. Unlike some other players in the NBA who always made sure they fought the smallest guy that was around <laughs> to look tough. I like the fact that this young guy, second year player, whose name also escapes me. <laughs> exactly. Because <laughs> we're never going to know him again. Uh, but I'm just saying, halfway through the run through the locker room, it feels like, hey, I'm chasing the Space Jam guy. <laughs> like, I, I, it's just, Space it Jam like, 2 guy. Sorry, Space, space Jam. Sorry, sorry, the, the bad yeah. Space Jam. Is there a good one? Uh, not really. I feel like the fact that it's LeBron should be part of your consideration, no matter how angry you are. In the moment, if you're like, oh, I'm so angry, and you go after the guy that did it to you, then I see like it doesn't matter that it's LeBron. When you are chasing him around the <laughs> locker room, at some point you're like, oh, this guy could theoretically, economically destroy me and my entire family and everyone that I care about. Yeah. It feels at one point you might back off of that a little bit. Not the beginning, but maybe eventually. But maybe, maybe eventually someone like going, yo, dog, you want to be in Space Jam 3 or not? <laughs> I do not like his odds. I don't like the odds of there being a Space Jam 3, but I also don't like the odds if there is one. This person whose name I cannot remember. And it's going to turn out to be, by the way, he's going to turn out to be like a superstar, like just out of nowhere. This will spur him on to be great. And people are going to find clips of this show in three years and be like, look at these two idiots. It's, can't remember the name of this guy. It's a big moment. So, yeah. I hope he does become a superstar so I can be embarrassed years later for not remembering his name. Well, we'll have it coming. We'll deserve it. We'll totally deserve it. All right, LZ, moving on. We're at a crossroads with our relationship, uh, obviously, with, our, with China. We have to start as a world making decisions that are based upon um, right and wrong, period. And uh, we can't compromise that. And we're definitely willing to pull our business and deal with all the complications that come with it, um, because this is certainly, um, this is bigger than the business. That was the CEO of the WTA, Steve Simon, telling CNN that he's willing to suspend the WTA's business operations in China, worth about $100 million a year, because he's so concerned about the well-being of Chinese tennis star Peng Shui after she revealed on November 2nd that she was sexually assaulted by a Communist Party official. Peng was not seen or heard from for a couple of weeks after her message was posted, with many observers believing that she was placed under house arrest in Beijing. This past weekend, Chinese state media did release pictures of her in public, and Peng did speak with the members of the IOC and said that she was okay. But there's still abundant concern that she's not anywhere near in control of her life right now. So I ask you, Will, if the WTA is willing to take a big financial hit to do what's right, do we have any confidence that the NBA and the IOC, which earn a ton of money from China, will follow suit? Okay, so there's a lot going on here. First off, the IOC, I would say they are- You don't are, believe them? They're not particularly credulous, I'll put it that way. The idea like, oh no, well, they called and we spoke to her. It's fine. There's nothing to worry about. The Olympics are totally good. Don't worry. Everything's good. Everything's fine. The WTA, I think quite reasonably, uh, didn't have that reaction. I think the difference between the WTA and the NBA in this regard is the WTA- their players are really upset about what's going on. Serena Williams has already come out and talked about this. You've seen other players talk about how they are very worried about her. They are not going to be eager to go play in China right now. That is not the case in the NBA. And I think that's a fundamental thing to keep in mind about the NBA's business with China. It's not just the NBA. It's the players. It's the, the players are just as involved in this as the NBA is. One of the fundamental insights 
that Adam Silver had about the NBA. Players are partners in this. Treat them not as labor or the people that work for you, treat, even if they are, in fact, that, according to your owners. Treat them <laughs> as if like they are small business affiliates under a larger blanket. And they're entrepreneurs. Treat them like entrepreneurs. Treat them like they have stake in the game, which is, I think, a smart way to achieve labor peace and a great way to generally feel like your league is in a positive place. Encourage them to talk about political concerns. The issue here is so many athletes have followed the NBA's lead and have huge, huge involvements in China. The one thing that Ted Cruz has ever been right about, other than that, maybe the beard will help. It I'm didn't. really listening to this. The beard didn't help, but you know what? It didn't hurt. Uh, the, the, other than that, the one thing that he's right about is it is a little hypocritical for athletes to be wisely and, and correctly and I think fairly and I think honestly talking about social justice issues but then when it comes to business interests that they have in China being very very quiet let's about see, it. Let's see that's, that's garbage though Well, Okay let's go. It's garbage because yeah you could say that the NBA players the athletes are being hypocritical or you can be real about it and say the country is hypocritical of course, of course, because of course. the nation speaks of human rights issues globally. And we position ourselves to be the world's police many a times based upon how we think morality should play out, based upon our worldview of morality. And so we're in bed with China. <laughs> yeah, no question. While also positioning <laughs> ourselves as the moral authority of the planet. So before we even start talking about LeBron James or James Harden or Clay Thompson and their hypocrisy, why not talk about the simple geopolitical hypocrisy of the Western world? <laughs> well, of course, I totally agree. But in this instance that we're talking about, the reason that the NBA is not going to do what the WTA is doing is that its labor force doesn't want to mess with China. Whereas you've seen individual tennis players more willing to say, we want to know what's going on with her. We need to find out what's going on. And we're not a part of this until we know she's okay. Therefore, the WTA president feels like he has the power then to say, I won't be a part of this. Adam Silver absolutely does not have that power because he doesn't have the backing of his athletes. Yes, Ted Cruz also full of shit, to be as clear as possible. <laughs> Ted Cruz is completely full of shit. I love to clear about that. Yeah, he does not care at all what LeBron thinks about China. He's just doing this to try to devalue what he says on other things. In this circumstance, this is why the NBA is so tied up. That I think we have a clip of this, but there's a famous time where James Harden, after Daryl Morey's tweet, which he had to take down, and everybody freaked out. And you had... Furman Tertata, the Houston owner, saying, oh, I assure you that he does not speak for the Houston Rockets organization. And I remember the owner of the Nets had this like long screen about the opium wars, like, yes. well, here's the way it works and so on. But certainly the NBA, the last thing in the world they want to do is upset China and the players are all involved in that. And that's why I said about the James Harden thing. When people asked him about it after LeBron had also been very quiet, he said, China. I love China. He played for Mori at the time. It almost immediately <laughs> sounded like I don't want to upset my business interest in China. We love China. We love you know playing there. Uh, I know for, for both of us individually, we go there you know once or twice a year. Uh, they show us the most important love. So you know we appreciate them as a fan base, and uh, we love everything you know they're about, and, and, uh, and you know we appreciate the support that they give us individually and as an organization. So. And I get it. They shouldn't be called out any more than the rest of us that are all involved in China. I'm speaking on an iPhone right now. I'm wearing Nikes. Like, we're all a part of this at, at a certain level. It's, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of the time that Elton John performed for Rush Limbaugh's wedding. I don't think Rush I Limbaugh and Elton John. I didn't, I don't, didn't know this happened. And at the time... 
as you can imagine, mm-hmm. a lot of people, you know, left-leaning liberals, for instance, weren't thrilled with Sir Elton John for performing at Rush Limbaugh's wedding. I think the, the fee was like a million dollars or something like that. What Elton John decided to do was to take that money that he was paid for by Rush and dedicate it towards issues and organizations that Rush hates. <laughs> so he was taking Rush's money and using it to fight for LGBTQ equality. Right. So when I think about LeBron James, and I ask myself, is it somewhat hypocritical not to come out strong against the human rights infractions that happens in China while being this beacon of hope for a lot of people when it comes to social justice issues here stateside? A little bit, though I would argue every fight can't be your fight, right. otherwise you'll lose all the fights. Right. But I also know that this is a man who takes a lot of his own personal wealth and put it in the pockets of people who need it most, who gives them resources. He's getting his kids graduated from not just undergrad, but helping them line their pockets so that they can pay for their own grad schools that they wanted to. He's a job creator. He's a philanthropist. He's an educator. And so, yes, he's taking money from China, a lot of money from China that he does not want messed with. And yes, he enjoys himself with this money. He's got big houses. He flies around, blah, blah, blah. That's all true. But it's also true that he does a lot of good with that money. And so I get where Enya's cancer is coming from. I do. And I understand that Enya's cancer is putting his life on the line at times, talking about the issues that he's talking about in the manner in which he's speaking of. He's also putting loved ones back home in danger to speak out uh, strongly against the, the human rights improprieties that are happening overseas and back home for him. But he also isn't giving back any of the money that he's making. A lot of that is coming because of the success the NBA has in China, right? He's not giving about a percentage of any shoe deals, you know? He's not giving about a percentage of his salary. So is he being a hypocrite, you know? Like, I mean, we all are. I mean, we and, all are. And that's, and, and, and that's my point. Right. That, right that's my right. point. You know, if you really want to run this through a purity test, no one's going to pass. Right. right. So the question isn't whether or not the United States has been a hypocrite when it comes to its affairs with China. The question is, what are you doing with the resources that you're getting in this exchange with China? Are you supporting the things that you say that you are supporting? to try to help make the world a better place? Or are you simply saying that you want to make the world a better place, doing this business with China, but aren't really dedicated to the mission on a larger scale? It's complicated, man. Yeah, and, It's and, really complicated. And I think that's a good refutation of Ted Cruz and why he's full of crap <laughs> doing that. But there has to be a line, right? To me, the, one of the most disturbing things about this case is it is not like she went on social media and says the Chinese government is the wrong form of government. Uh, America is great. Buy capitalist products. This is a terrible thing. Do not deal with China. Or even right. said free Tibet. She went out and accused a member of the Chinese Communist Party of sexual assault. And they still came down this hard on her. To me, that is very disturbing and very discouraging really on moving forward. Like, I understand that quandary of the idea of you've got business interests and not every business interest is going to be the perfect business interest that you'd like it to be. I understand that. Life is complicated. It's a rich Mm -hmm. pageant. Things are difficult. 
But is there a line for China if they're going to take a really well-known like tennis player that, that is good at what she does and disappear her for a week and have her pop up and say to whatever IOC toady that happened to be on the line <laughs> that time and say, oh, well, I guess she's fine then. Keep the Olympics going. We're all happy. If they can just pluck people out for a week over literally accusing a party member of sexually assaulting her, not even political speech in any way, if they can do that. That, how much should we want to be in business with these people at all? And but to they, ha- but and they've I, been disappearing people. Yeah, I understand. They, I understand that. Jur- journalists, right. any dissent. I mean, I hear what you're saying, and I definitely am concerned about how they're treating her. But I'm also concerned about how they're treating all the Muslims that are over there. And I'm also concerned about how they're treating children. And I'm also concerned about how they're treating the climate. And I'm also concerned about how they're treating people in the LGBTQ community. So there are a lot of issues with China. You're asking, where is the line? And I'm saying, I don't know if there is one. (laughs) If there is, they've already crossed it, right? (laughs) Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, Like, we've decided as a nation way back when, and I'm not gonna blame everything on Nixon because who could have predicted this, right? Right. When he opened the world up to China, however you want to characterize it. But there is an onus on us culturally as a country that must accept that we have been complicit in a lot of the atrocities that we're accusing China of, of doing simply by continuing to have business there, continuing to invest there, and continuing by allowing them to invest in our neighborhoods. And I'm using invest in air quotes because we all know about the vertical banks, right? Right, right. Big, large, empty buildings that's driving up the cost of living in the neighborhood, but no one actually lives in those buildings. They're just using them to house money, basically. There's a lot of concern about our economic relationships with China. And so when you ask, where's the line? And will the NBA or will the IOC do X, Y, and Z? The IOC is a corrupt-ass fucking organization. Why are we looking at them for any kind of morality? I'm not. <laughs> I'm they, definitely they, not. I mean, Will, this is, a, this is a, <laughs> an organization that turns a blind eye to slave labor to yeah. build the buildings that we all go in and watch fireworks fire yeah. off during the opening ceremonies. And we act like, oh, this is so nice and clean. This is all part of the IOC, the Olympic Games that we all embrace We all are cognizant of the fact there's some shady, shifty shit going on to put these games on. And we just put our head down and continue to go with it because no one wants to stop and say this isn't right to the point in which things are stopped. That's why I find what the WTA did curious because they they did make a stand in a way that other leagues have not. And they've been able to do that from a position, again, to please their labor force. I have to tell you, I suspect China is not like, oh, no. The WTA is going to take their business out of here. Like oh, I suspect, no. that, like I, I, I suspect they'll do what they've done a lot of things, and they'll just wait them out <laughs> because yeah, eventually, yeah, yeah. like they'll wait them out and be like, "That's fine, go ahead and don't play there." I guess what I'm saying is, can it get so brazen that they're like, like we talk about how if there's a line, we've already crossed it. Fine. Yeah. Okay. So let's say we just don't see her again. What happens then? Does a WTA ever play in China again? Does that make Adam Silver say, okay, now we should reevaluate this? Does it do anything in that regard? Or if we will accept the things that we have accepted already, and we have, it feels like there has to be 
some line, right? If she's disappeared, will we all collectively say, oh, that's so awful. That's so terrible. But James Harden has the shoe line. I think that is the ultimate question. And it makes me, to be honest, it makes me find this conversation more dispiriting than my usual conversations with you, LZ, because (laughs) I feel like the answer at the end is, yeah, ain't nobody going to do shit. There is no answer. Nobody's going to do shit because you haven't done shit so far. Because they haven't done shit so far. And I don't know. I think we as journalists are always looking for like, and that was the moment when everything changed. We're always looking for that moment. And sometimes it happens, right? Sometimes it happens. Like Harvey Weinstein, that would be a moment. When that story broke, that changed things in a certain direction. I think we're always looking for like, oh, well, this is the thing that's too far. But with China, I feel like we've seen that dozens and dozens of times and it's never been too far. I don't know why this would be any different as horrifying and scary as it is. Because $100 million is a lot of money to us, but it's nothing to them. Yeah. Great. I gotta talk. I never want to talk about something this sad. We're going to talk about so many sad things on this show. I always come so happy out of conversation with you. And then at the end of this, I'm like, yeah, right. Everything sucks and we're complicit in all of it. All right, Will, let's move on to a happier story, shall we? Please. (laughs) And this story might just be the greatest sports story in history. There was at least one point where you bust in a load of kids and had them stand around the court and hurl all sorts of insults and abuse at the girls. Why did you do that? Because in order to be successful, you must prepare for the unexpected. And I wanted to prepare for that. Serena Williams, uh, that's number one in the world now, I believe. Uh, she played at a place called Indian Wells. The whole crowd turned against her. And all that she had to do was remember the training that she had been through. That was Richard Williams, the controversial father, coach, and advisor of Venus, and Serena Williams, two of the greatest tennis players of all time, talking about his unorthodox coaching methods in a CNN interview. We think it would be great to revisit this story since a new movie, King Richard, starring Will Smith, Oscar frontrunner at this point, has just been released. And it's all about how Venus and Serena went from obscurity in Compton, California, and beat overwhelming odds to become such great champions. It's pretty clear they would have not gotten there without the help of Richard's vision, acumen, and sometimes curious motivational skills. What I want to know, LZ... Is the journey of the Williams sisters, learning tennis from their dad, barely playing tournaments when they were juniors, and generally thumbing their noses at the tennis establishment before they, of course, both went on to win dozens of major titles between them, is this the greatest story in sports history? It's damn close, you know? It's damn close. I've had LeBron James as the number one story for a while, in large part because of just where he is now, based upon where he's come Mm. from. But he at least had people who knew basketball be his coach. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, right. like the fact that the father didn't even know the game or had played the game before started learning it himself to teach his daughters is a wrinkle to the story that is just really hard to top. It's absurd. It's, it's absolutely a, absurd. It's absurd. <laughs> I don't know. Do you play tennis? I play tennis, yeah. Not very well, but I do play. It's hard keeping that little small ball on the fucking court. Yeah, yeah. Your technique to putting that spin on the ball so that it descends onto the court every single time at the rate in which that ball is traveling over the course of minutes and then hours. And in the case of John Isner and Nicholas Mahout, you know, days. (laughs) (laughs) It's, It's crazy to think that this man 
picked it up watching videos and reading books and then taught his daughters and then his daughters took that bit of information and grew into these icons. It's mind boggling to think that he was able to do that. So while LeBron James to me, homelessness at times, absentee parents at times, never in trouble, billionaire, philanthropist, in the conversation the greatest of all time, still playing, still expected to lead a team to a championship after 20 years in the league. <laughs> That's ridiculous. But he at least will had real coaches. <laughs> it is. Did you like the movie? I, I haven't talked to you about the movie. I did. did you like I it? I did. I love the movie. Yeah, I thought it was really good too. And I'll tell you why. I love the movie because I'm aware, and I'm sure you are too, of the criticism that it doesn't focus enough on Venus and Serena. Despite the fact that the movie is called King Richard, for some reason, people thought it was going to be about two women. Fine, whatever. But I love the movie because it acknowledged their father in front of the world. He may not get into the International Tennis Hall of Fame. He doesn't get talked about as much because he's not as visible. You know, it's my understanding that he's having problems speaking because of the strokes that he suffered. For them to be able to get one of the biggest movie stars on the planet to portray their father and present to the world this piece of his story as a thank you was absolutely tremendous in my estimation. And I, I understand people wanted to learn more about Venus and Serena. And trust me, they will have plenty of opportunity to have their yeah. story told for sure. Yeah. And Orsine as well needs her story told as well because the story is that incredible. But damn, why can't the black man have his shine? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, he's the modern day Walter Lee. Right. He's the real life James Evans. Right. He's out there grinding, trying to provide for his family in the world. They're trying to choke out all his hope and dreams. And as soon as this film comes out, what does the world want to do? Choke him out some more. <laughs> and you're just like, damn, the daughters did it. <laughs> yeah. Like they're literally executive producers <laughs> on the movie. In fact, I've, I've seen criticism on the other side like, that it's too kind to them, which I also don't agree with. The Williams sisters have plenty of time. There are plenty of stories to be told. I do not think that they are lacking in public glory or public understanding right now. But I want to get back to Richard because there's a great scene early on in the movie where Will Smith is talking to a kind of smart tennis guy put by the actor Kevin Dunn. And basically, Kevin Dunn mm -hmm. explains, I think pretty clearly, what is so truly insane about the Richard Williams story, which is essentially, like, never mind that he never played tennis. Even if he was a tennis genius, even if he knew everything about the world, he looked at his two daughters who were six Seven, seven at the time and said, those two women right there, these two little kids, like I have a seven-year-old. I don't trust him to like not trip walking outside the door. And he looked at them and said, what do you have outside your door? <laughs> just the steps, like just walking, like he's going to walk on a wall. And what kind of just, hazards you got them outside the door? Are you scared they're going to fall down and hurt themselves? To be fair, I did build a moat around our house. So in retrospect, I guess I did put some perils in his way. But looking at these two little girls and saying, these are going to be the two best tennis players in the world. That is insanity of every possible degree. Even if he knew tennis really well, even if like, I don't know, 
Pete Sampras. <laughs> Even if Andre Agassi and Steffi Graf, you know, they have some pretty good tennis genes in their family. Even if pretty they look at two of their children and said, they're going to be the best two tennis players in the world. We'd be like, oh, that's great. But you're crazy, Andre Agassi and right. Steffi Graf. That's not how the world works. You can't just make it that way. There's uh, so many things that go into this. He said that. He wrote this infamous 85-page plan to put it together. And he's explained this to Kevin Dunn. And Kevin Dunn is looking at him like, you're a lunatic. That's what makes that story so crazy is the odds were like, never mind the odds. We hear it all the time in sports. The odds are against it. The odds are always against anything happening all the time. It's staggering that the two of us are sitting and having this conversation right now. The, the <laughs> world is full of things that should not be happening and are happening all the time. This is impossible. <laughs> like, this is absolutely impossible. That thing that he would say when they were such little girls would happen and would happen so incredibly. And you've touched on something I think is really, really important. And I think it's key in the movie. One thing I've always been kind of amazed about the Williams sisters, like, listen, tennis is a sport where people are constantly losing their minds, right? And the movie touches on this, how the the young players would get so angry. We've seen Serena maybe a little later have some moments of kind of an outburst. But generally speaking, they seem pretty well adjusted in a sport where sometimes, I think historically, it's been difficult. I think the movie does a good job of touching on how Richard also is a part of that and how the family is a part of that, of keeping them very grounded in this world that could easily get away from them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as I said, it's a beautiful love letter to their father. It's a thank you. They grew up in the fire and he shielded them from the heat, if you will. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I remember early on the criticism that they faced because they didn't go through juniors. And I remember early on the criticism that was thrown their way when they were showing interest in things outside of the sport, like fashion or making movies. People were all over them. They're not serious. You're not going to win if you don't give it your all and stay focused only on this one thing. And they were basically being told to shut up and dribble before it was a phrase, (laughs) right? Like, stay in your lane. You're an athlete. Just do that. And their parents didn't raise them that way. Their parents wanted them to be well-rounded. They wanted to be well-adjusted, to your point. And I don't think anyone could argue that the parents weren't successful in that. But this notion that this film falls short because we didn't focus enough on Venus and Serena misses the point of why the movie was made in the first place. It was to say, thank you, dad, while their father was still alive to hear it. You know, yeah. <laughs> like it's, and, yeah. and it, yeah. it's upsetting to me because as a black man who watched his stepfather struggle and as a black man who watched other fathers struggle, and they try to keep up a good face for their kids or for their families. Meanwhile, the bills are stacking up or the the electricity's not on or they're struggling to keep food on the table. There's racism facing them one way. There's drugs and violence in the neighborhood facing them in another way. And these black men are in these positions trying to do the best they can for their families. And these amazing daughters, these women, recognized all of that put their resources together, got the biggest stars they knew, <laughs> Beyonce doing the song, Will Smith playing the father. It's a good song, by the way. It's a very, it's a very really awesome, inspirational song. end of movie song. Venus and Serena gonna shake up this world. It's a fantastic song that the Grammys will ignore. <laughs> yeah, but the Oscars won't. The Oscars will not ignore them. The Oscars may not. Who knows? They could have done a movie about themselves. It's not as if Hollywood was going to say, no, 
we don't want a Serena Williams story with Viola Davis as the mother. Like, no, (laughs) they weren't going to say that, right? right, right. They chose to do this movie about their father while he was alive. That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And shame on people who can't see that because they're so busy focusing in on what the movie didn't say or what the movie didn't have. Yeah, as, as someone in my other life of, of writing and talking about movies, there was a very stupid strain of movie criticism that was like, yeah, sure, you did this thing in your movie, but why didn't you do these eight other things that I personally <laughs> yeah. wish you would have done? It's a very, very kind of dumb way to look at movies. Though I will say one thing I like about the movie, too, while it is obviously a positive portrait of their father and in the proof and- I mean- but he's not I, perfect. I, I, he's not perfect say, in that movie. He's not perfect. That's yeah, what yeah, I mean. He's, he's definitely not perfect in that movie. And in fact, no. he, in many ways, he is like, I can imagine oh, how crazy. impossible it must have been to deal with him. <laughs> it must have been so impossible. Every single moment of the movie is infused with, but they turn out to be Venus and Serena. So obviously it worked out. But right. there are so many moments where they're just pulling their hair out because they know Richard's wrong. At one point, Tony Goldman literally yells at him. Uh, that's what—that's the thing, though, right? Because at one point, Tony Goldman yells at him. He's like, "You don't know what you're talking about," and he is both right and also totally wrong. Because look what happened, and right. that to me is like this fascinating central kind of fight of the film. Because Richard is impossible to deal with in this movie. He is a force of nature. You cannot talk sense into him. He's convinced that he's right, but. He won. The kids turned great. And to me, that's a fascinating thing the whole movie's infused with is no matter what he does, no matter how impossible he is, no matter what personal failings he has, the decisions he made with the kids were correct. It makes the story triumphant in a way that feels more real than maybe it even should. Who's going to play LeVar Ball (laughs) when when the LeVar Ball movie is made? Because very similarly, Mm -hmm. he told us them boys were going to be something. And what happened? Come the draft, Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson picked <laughs> his sons to play for them. And I don't give a damn what you want to say, Will, about <laughs> his mannerisms, his sexism, yeah. the, the you know all all the things, the flaws that's wrong with him. Like they were wrong with Richard Williams, like they were wrong with Walter Lee, like they were wrong with James Evans, and a whole long list of people. John Q. We can go on and on and on about black men in the public eye, whether fictional or real, who say and do these bold things and trying to raise their family in this world. And people are pointing at them saying, "You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong." Right. But the one thing Levar Ball wasn't wrong about was those boys because two of the all-time greats picked his sons to start their team and we got a bona fide star in the youngest and Lonzo looks like he's actually starting to round himself into being a really good player as well. I don't know who's going to play LeVar Ball in the movie, Will. Um, I just hope that we're in it. (laughs) <laughs> Let's pretend that we were like doing PTI in the early days of ball. I'll be Tony being like, I, who is this guy? Why do I have to listen to him? And wait, it'll, wait, be wait, wait. Go, it'll be very yeah, fun. It'll be very fun. Don't listen to him, knuckleheads. See, I'm real yeah, Exactly. I'm real uh, uh, and then, I, and then I'm, I'm so grumpy anyway. I, who even cares about any of this stuff? Rah, 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 rah. And there you go. We conclude the segment with our Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon impersonations. That Michael, was probably inevitable. He's going to kill me for that. (laughs) Okay, Will, we'll take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to talk about the fragile state of Major League Baseball, which may be locking out its players soon after Thanksgiving. What the hell is baseball doing? We'll break that down next. The Long Game 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, Will, we're back. I can't believe there's a single fan in the world who doesn't understand that um, an off-season lockout that moves the process forward is different than a labor dispute that costs games. Those were comments made recently by Major League Baseball Commissioner Rob Manfred about baseball's brewing labor troubles, which could soon cause a serious blow to the health of the sport. The current collective bargaining agreement between the players and team owners will expire at midnight on December 2nd. The sides are far apart, surprise, surprise, on many contentious issues involving the share of the sport's billions of dollars of yearly revenue, and many observers are predicting the owners will institute a labor lockout if an agreement is not reached in the next week. Since the start of the 2022 season may now be in jeopardy, I think it's fair to wonder, Will, does baseball have any idea what it's doing? I feel obliged to note that baseball has not had a work stoppage in 26 years. Now, it's been since that 1994 strike, which was bad. There was no World Series. That was horrible. <laughs> I love the World Series, and I can't believe they did Who doesn't? They had no World Series. Bad. Very bad. They almost used replacement players, remember, in 1995. That was how Pete Rose Jr. almost made the major leagues. Isn't that a movie with Charlie Sheen, too? You're thinking of the Keanu Reeves, uh, ah, the uh, Keanu Reeves. Sheen Hackman football movie. So it was very bad, obviously. But it's still worth noting that every other league has had a ton of labor issues since then. But I think Major League Baseball sometimes gets a reputation as the league with the horrible labor issues because the 1994 strike was so devastating. But clearly it's an issue. Clearly it's a problem. There's two ways to look at this. One is basically what's happened since then. One of the reasons that they've had labor peace is baseball's union It's gotten weaker since the age of Marvin Miller or some of the stronger union leaders in the past. Now Tony Clark is the leader of the Players Union. He's a former player. He's not a lawyer. And so he's looking out for things. He's really big, though. I enjoyed him as a player. I actually like him as a person. (laughs) He seems like a likable guy. But in the last few years, the last few labor agreements, they focused on getting an extra roster spot, letting veterans have more days off, more spaces on the bus is the way they always classify this. You get more good things for players. But in the macro since the share of revenues has fallen for players. And so a lot of times it's younger players that are getting the brunt of that. They're getting less money. And so what's happened is the free agent market gets quieter because as teams have become more efficient, as they become more money ball, they are focusing on cheap young players and older players are kind of losing their power a little bit. Meanwhile, teams are also tanking. They're not spending a lot of money. There's so much money in baseball right now that a lot of these issues have come to a head. It's not so much that they're fighting specifically about arbitration or they're fighting specifically about this thing. It's this general notion, players feel like they've kind of gotten rolled for a while, 
owners do not feel like players have gotten rolled for a while. And so it's coming to that head. The reason the lockout is happening is to avoid 1994. In 1994, they had a strike. And if you do it on that sort of schedule, then you're in danger of losing games. What the commissioner is doing, correctly or incorrectly, is saying, we're pausing it now and going to the negotiating table now so we don't lose any games. So we have time until we get to spring training. That's why they're doing a lockout now. Listen, I'm a union guy. My dad's a union guy. I'm very pro-union. I feel like the players need to maybe get a little bit better of a deal on this. It is also worth noting that it feels there have been more existential fights than this one. This one feels more like a players don't trust owners. And why would they? They have no idea what their finances are. They never give out their finances. As far as they know, owners are always pleading poor and then selling their teams for four times what they paid for them. So (laughs) at a certain level, they must not be that poor. The major thing is there's a general lack of trust from both sides. There are big issues in sports in baseball, but it doesn't feel like they're so intractable that they couldn't figure them out. The problem is neither side trusts one another. And so they can't even agree to what they disagree on at this point. And so I feel like you need all the time of the lockout to be able to build up to that. It's going to be ugly. It's going to make it look like baseball is perhaps in more turmoil than it is because we hear baseball strike. There goes baseball screwing up again. (laughs) When the fact is, I think these are reasonable discussions that probably need to be adjudicated a little bit. I want to spend some time focusing in on the bad blood between the two, because it doesn't really matter what the issues are. If you don't trust one another, you're just going to have problems in the negotiating room. And the owners can do a lot to smooth things over by simply showing the books. Anyone who's ever followed me in the world of sports know I typically land on the side of the players or the athletes anyway, so that stance probably is not a surprising to them. But it really does get to the heart of the matter, which is you don't even respect this process enough to come to the table with the information that both sides need in order to negotiate in good faith. You don't expect this process enough. So you brought up Commissioner Silver, and I would go back to Commissioner Stern, who I think was really brilliant in the way that he redefined the relationship once he became commissioner. Because prior to David Stern, the NBA was in shambles. I mean, they were having the NBA finals on tape delay so that people could watch the Dukes of Hazzard in Dallas first. Like, like that's where the NBA was. I'm glad we live now. I'm glad we live in the now and not then. I prefer not everything, all of human progress has been positive, but that is definitely positive. I disagree with you. I would love to see <laughs> Dallas back on television. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> the point being is that the league didn't get popular again or gain popularity because the players got better. We're talking about a time where Dr. J and Magic Johnson were in tape delays. Like, so, so, so it wasn't a lack of star power or a lack of like talent. It was a lack of vision of what it means to be in partnership with one another. And I don't think that baseball, certainly not the ownership group, gets it. And beyond the fact that they won't show the books, is to look at the way they treat the farm system and how they treat the minor league players, the ones who aren't on camera, the ones who aren't being followed around and has large social media followings. They treat them like shit. If you truly understood the relationship between 
the minor leagues and the major leagues and, and the players and owners, you would know that you're letting your future stars know what they think of you while they're coming up through the farm system. So if you bitch slap me in middle school and you punch me in the face in high school, when I finally get to college, I'm going to be looking at you with a side eye. <laughs> and that's the dynamic that they're not putting together. These men that you are keeping the books from, they're the same men that you are forcing to eat ramen noodles and stay in people's houses coming up through the farm system. So you want to fix the relationship? You start by opening the books, but you also make the decision to treat the farm system more like they're part of the conversation and not something that you have to deal with and deal with it in a very disrespectful and I would even say mentally harmful way. Like that's not even necessary the way that they're kind of wallowing around in poverty trying to make it through the system. They're just doing it because they can. And it's awful. I wouldn't trust those guys either. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because in recent years, as more kind of like uh, spotlights been put on the minor leagues, I know that they've tried to work out something. But the real thing that's pushed that has been the players. And right. that's new because that's another issue that people typically have with players in these negotiations. One of the reasons the players have lost a little ground over the last 20 years, there's a little bit of pull the ladder up to the players uh, in baseball that you don't necessarily see in other leagues. Every sport always values veterans and veterans mm -hmm. and experience and so on. But baseball in particular has a culture of, hey, Rook, hey, Meat, you're nobody. you got to earn yourself up to this spot. They're always hazing them, making them wear all these crazy costumes and carry the bags all the time. The most respected guy in the Dodgers locker room, I guarantee you, was Albert Pujols. Now, even though he mm -hmm. wasn't the best player and had only just gotten there, they are a very seniority-based business business in baseball. So because of that, sometimes they worry about taking care of them more than necessarily taking care of younger players. And so one of the major issues that you would hope to see them fight for would be for a higher minimum salary for major league baseball players. Because also one of the problems that in the past, the players union has not fought for those minor leaguers because they're not members of the union. <laughs> and if they tried to argue, they're like, well, work your way up to the majors and go pack some bags, Rook. And like that's always been kind of the view in, in right. baseball. I, I would argue a backwards view and a potentially self-destructive view that you've seen from specifically the players union in baseball. The question is whether it's going to be different this time. My sympathies and my loyalties are always going to be with the players in the union in really kind of any sort of aspect. But if I'm really truly being honest, LZ, my loyalty really is for their being baseball and for their being <laughs> basketball and for their being the NBA. If you're really asking me at the end of the day, what would I rather see? The players sit out a season out of principle because they're right or would I rather see baseball? If I'm being entirely honest with you, I'd rather see baseball. <laughs> and I don't think that's an academic point, right? Not me specifically, though they should just listen exclusively to me. But in a larger sense, the PR battle is a huge part of this. You know as well as I do, in a lot of these labor management battles for years and years and years, for some reason, fans tend to be reflexively often be on the side of the owners. Oh, well, that guy's making $15 million and striking out. I could do that. You hear that all the time. You never hear that idiot in the owner's box uh, has, hasn't worked a day in the last 15 years and made a billion dollars in interest off all of his investments. <laughs> I could do that. Like, you never hear that. Uh, no, but I think be because players are so visible and because it feels like what they do has a closer relationship to something that we would do for free, Right now, I think most loyalties are generally with the players. But as this drags on, mm -hmm. this 
eventually it starts to switch a little bit. I was talking to some people about Freddie Freeman, a uh, free agent for the Braves this offseason, just won the World Series. And they were like, so what do you think Freddie's going to do? Is he going to be loyal or is he not going to be loyal? I'm like, Freddie Freeman is the one that has to be loyal? <laughs> this guy was underpaid for like seven years doing nothing. Finally gets a pseudo payday. Now has a chance to finally get a big payday for the team he just won a World Series for. It has been a loyal soldier for, for years. And you're right. saying if he leaves, he's the dis- loyal one and I think you see that in the general way that a lot of people look at athletes and look at players and that is going to be a key part of how these things play out where are the public sympathies what's the biggest change you want to see in baseball like it's from a, a pace of play rules sort of way yeah like you, you know you love baseball I love baseball I think a lot about the conversations people have had about making it better mm-hmm. a lot of people in, in my estimation conflate better with faster I don't want to see seven inning games. I don't want to see guys starting on second base for extra inning games. I don't want to see any of that. The biggest change I want to see is a time clock on pitches. Yeah, I can see that. But it's got to go for the hitters, too, because they're the ones that are stepping out a lot. Yep, you got to go for hitters, too. I want to see a time clock. You don't need to scratch yourself every time the ball goes by you. (laughs) Well, no one needs to. uh, uh, (laughs) So what's your big change? Jason Stark from The Athletic came with, I think, a pretty good idea of talking about the idea of because one of the major things that also extends games are pitching changes. There's too many pitchers. They take forever. They have to warm up. That's become a big issue. His argument is there's going to be universal DH, I think everyone assumes, next year. When you pull your starting pitcher, you lose the DH. That's his theory. Because one of the problems is starting pitchers, we've seen this last year, no one values starting pitching anymore. It would speed up because there'd be fewer pitching changes, but it would mm-hmm. also inspire starting pitchers to be in the game longer, which theoretically would mean that guy's pitching in the sixth inning rather than a hundred mile an hour dude that comes in and throws eight strikes and then leaves. And then you have more strikeouts and more strikeouts. People like starting pitchers. They like the idea of that gunslinger like against the Absolutely. other gunslinger. They, people love that. I've always kind of liked that idea. You lose the DH when you do a pitching change. It would inspire people to bring in more. And I think it would also lead to different strategy things. So that's the rule. The thing I've always kind of uh, thought was a good idea. Right. All right, LZ, moving on. For those of you who heard last week's show, and I assume it was all of you, LZ and I talked about team building and whether it's wisest to construct a team the most expensive way by signing star veteran players like the Los Angeles Rams have done, or drafting young players and waiting years for them to mature and grow, as, say, baseball's Baltimore Orioles are doing now. Well, as a little bonus segment for our loyal listeners, here to talk about his firsthand experience of going all in, I happen to have Marshall McLuhan right here. It's Rams general manager Les Snead. You know, we start every podcast asking each other, what is your sports mood? So, Les, what is your sports mood during your bye week? During bye week, it was intentional effort not to ruminate right on on two straight losses. A lot of times when you don't have a bye week, right, you you have to get back on the horse per se or or, or get ready for the next challenge. You get a chance to get that uh, taste out of your mouth per se. But my mood right now is is ready to – to tackle, uh, let's call it this week at Green Bay, but really the the last seven games of, of our regular season because it's a tough stretch as we see every week in this league. This thing's there's no guarantees, there's no favorites, and you better be ready to come to play. 
one of the topics we discussed last week was specifically about your team in the larger construct of like roster construction. A team like yours is clearly trying to win right now by any means necessary. You're not worrying about some indeterminate future. Does that put more pressure on you? Like the general manager of the Baltimore Orioles is not getting fired for like five years because the plan <laughs> is like way in the future. Does that put an extra pressure on you that might not be if you were selling the fans a, oh, bear with us in three or four years, you're going to see the culmination of our plan. It is cool that uh, because of what we've done, we've helped get the five-year plan back in vogue, right? <laughs> uh, so that, that's good for a lot of general managers. But if we take a step back, I do think, let, let's call it, maybe not in the Baltimore uh, Oreo situation, but when we first started this journey in 2012, maybe we were more like the Baltimore Orioles. One of the first moves we made was trade the two-pick to the Redskins during that whole RG3 thing. One of the next moves we made in the draft was moving back out of the top 10 into the into the mid-teens to, again, collect more future assets. So I think any organization, maybe in the Orioles' case, I don't follow baseball probably like you do, obviously, but I think you got to be have a keen awareness. Are, are we building? Are we close to breaking through? Sometimes breaking through is the hardest thing to do because that's when you're – you're getting closer, but maybe you hadn't learned to win yet. And if you've broken through, are you contending? And there's definitely levels of, of contending. We, we like to say, okay, can we contend for a division at that point in time, right? If you win the division, you're automatically in it or get close and get the wild card. So I, I think that's what, what we focused on now is that contention phase. Uh, but doesn't necessarily mean that, okay, we're, you know, after 2021, we're closing up shop and, and not playing again. We're, we're very well aware that 2022 will be very important as 23 and 24. Do you have to earn the public's trust on something like that? How long do you think you have to show results when you have something like that in 2012? I think it's pretty simple in sports. Winning probably equates to trust if there's ever trust or that type of thing. So I, I think about what the Patriots did during their run because they had that run because they won. They, you know, it did seem like right fan base and and maybe anti fans or even let's call it big picture journalists. Right? You, you, okay. I respect what what they're doing. They earn the right to be able to do it. But there's also probably situations maybe in Miami of recent and and, and maybe in the last couple of weeks too where maybe they weren't winning yet, but. You can feel that, okay, they're building, they're close to breaking through. It does seem like, you know, Brian, his staff is coaching that team well. They're playing well. So you can maybe not be winning, but there's an element, there's a pulse that, okay, they're they're moving in the right direction. But sports is probably simple, right? Winning is the cure-all for everything. You've made several big, splashy moves at the wide receiver position in particular. You know, Sammy Watkins, Brandy Cooks, of course, Brought in Deshaun. Now you got OBJ. You brought up 2022. Is he going to be with us in 2022? I think that's still to be determined because in the OBJ situation, right, it, it's interesting. It was un, it, unlike maybe Jalen, Matt, even Vaughn to an extent where you make a trade. He, if you want to call it the perfect storm was, uh, you know, he asked for maybe a trade. They weren't able to get a trade done, asked for his release. They worked to release out. No one claimed him. So he's a free agent. Based on how we do things, we play a lot of receivers. We play three receivers a good bit of the time, but we lost three of them. So maybe there's a chance that OBJ uh, can help us. And, and we were able to have some good discussions with him. And because when he decided to come here, right, it, we had our 
you know, if you want to say our three counting Robert Woods, uh, unfortunately, maybe the day he got here, Robert, you know, tore his ACL. So it really made the signing beneficial. But we had to sit down and, and work with him to go, OK, he, hey, can we work together? Here's the plan. Here's how we can use you. And and also we got to get him here right and, and get him inundated with let's call it the new the new tactics, uh, <laughs> you know, a new offense in the middle of the year. Is that difficult with someone who has been so high profile and has had such attention for so long from whatever team that he's been on? With a player like that, do you have to say, listen, I know what's happened over there, but if you're going to work here, it's a different situation for you? Is, is yeah, that- I, think, I think communicating uh, on the front end roles, expectations, very important. That way, because at that point in time, right, Odell has a has a choice. He He actually has, right, quality teams suiting him. Uh, so you, you really have to talk through Sean, Sean would sat down with him and say, Hey, this is how I call a, call a game. And it's not necessarily right to, you know, he, he never wants to get in a situation where midway through the second quarter, maybe he just got to call a play to a player, uh, to keep that player from pouting per se, right? He wants to be able to call a play that he thinks in that moment helps the Rams eventually win that game on that Sunday. So, uh, you know, I think sitting down listening to Sean, how he calls games and, and things like that, and it was very important. And also sitting down with Odell going, okay, this is how we can, let's call it implement you on Monday night. This is how we can get through a bye and now begin, right, integrating you more and more into the offense, especially as uh, he learns more as, you know, there's more chemistry built between, you know, him and Matt and, and things like that. Final question to ask you. Okay. Reportedly, your kids gave you a mug that said, fuck them picks. Is that true? <laughs> you know, the, the answer is yes. They were something, a few other people had sent me uh, the mug as well. And it was interesting. It was kind of, it was probably earlier when it first came out. Uh, but I do, uh, so in this recent deal with, with the Vaughn trade, and it, it kind of got spun back up again, that's when my kids, I have a 21-year-old, 18 and 17. So uh, <laughs> fortunately have one daughter, so she could care less, which is always a breath of fresh air. But with the two uh, males in the family, they're definitely you know, they will send me, text me the memes because I'm not on social media. So I, I guess I get to, but here's the positive. I don't have to uh, withstand the venom uh, that maybe is out there on social media, but I do miss out on the uh, creativity that's out there. And sometimes, right, uh, you're the butt of the joke. And in this case, maybe you are, but you understand that it's not that it's kind of, it's pretty funny. And there's some pretty creative, if used right, there's a lot of creativity on those platforms. Well, sir, thank you for your time uh, and continue good luck with the rest of the season. Even though you are talking to an Arizona Cardinals fan here, I have nothing but good oh, thoughts, geez. nevertheless, for you. Oh, it's a great year for you, right? When you go two and one without your starting QB. <laughs> yeah. Did you see that the McCoys won two games in Seattle with two different teams? Oh, yeah, he did it last year with the Giants. <laughs> yeah, with the Bears. So interesting. I remember that game. I think we were actually coincidentally probably playing at Arizona. Last year, when he beat yeah. Seattle for <laughs> yeah. the Giants, so that, you know. But it, it, as I say, eleven games. It's really nice to be nine and two and number one after eleven games. But yeah. again, that's only eleven games. Long way to go. Long way to go. Long way to go. All right. Well, thank you for your time very much. Be safe. Continue good luck the rest of the season. Enjoyed it. Thanks, Les. Thanks, LZ. Take care. Alrighty, it's time for this week in sports history where we look at an event from the past through the lens of 2021. 
Beckett swings and hits a blast. Deep left center, way back, way back. It's gone. The Twins go to the seventh game. Touch them all, Kirby Puckett. Touch them all, Kirby Puckett. And the Twins have won this game four to three on a dramatic home run by Kirby Puckett. That was the sound of Minnesota Twins great Kirby Puckett winning Game 6 of the 1991 World Series with a home run in the 11th inning. Why are we bringing this up, Will? Because 32 years ago this week, on November 22nd, 1989, Puckett signed a then-enormous contract. You ready for it? I can. Three years for $9 million, becoming mm. the first baseball player to break $3 million per season. As a comparison, Michael Jordan only made $2.5 million for the 1989-1990 NBA season. Will, was Kirby Puckett really worth more than Michael Jordan? Oh, obviously he was a more dominant athlete than Michael Jordan in every possible way. Even physically was in clearly superior shape than Michael Jordan. I don't understand why this is an argument. Okay, so this was peak Kirby Puckett, right? Not just was he an all-star and MVP. He was beloved. He was, in a lot of ways, was the face of a sport, which around 1989 was making more money and generally had more money to pay for salaries than the NBA did. Now, Obviously, that's different. Also, Jordan had a lot of, he was off salary uh, income. I think it's fair to say that Michael Jordan had a lot of that. Remember, the idea that Kirby Puckett was making $3 million, it very much played into that idea that like a lot of casual uh, observers will be like, $3 million to play baseball? I play <laughs> baseball for free. Right. What These overpaid, spoiled athletes, this is ridiculous and so on. And it's funny because this is around the time where salaries were start to explode. It was just four years before this that Ozzie Smith became the first $1 million player. I feel like that whole players are so overpaid thing started around this time because that was when salaries were starting to really explode. But I feel like at least at that time period, for Kirby Puckett, it made sense because of just how good he was. Yeah. I do think that there were fans who kind of raised an eyebrow when they saw that figure, but at the same time, they understood how good Kirby Puckett was. It was when the people who weren't as good as Kirby Puckett or even half as good as Kirby mm -hmm. Puckett started making $3 million that people were like, going, no, hold on one doggone minute. <laughs> what the hell is going on here? We're okay with Kirby Puckett making millions, but who's this guy or who's this player and why are they making this money? And it moved away from looking at the general sort of economics of the business yeah. and looking at specific salaries of individual players and whether or not they performed at a high enough level for the fan base. I remember around this time, the sporting news used to have an issue every year that listed the salaries of every major league baseball player. A list like that now is, of course, available for everyone. But if you are a subscriber to that newspaper or that magazine and you read it, that is just a engine for outrage to be like, what? <laughs> that guy's hitting 147 and he's making more money than I've made in the last 15 years. And I do think that led to, I mean, we're going to see this in baseball this winter, right? I still feel like there's a lot of sports fans who don't look at owners and say, you inherited your team. You don't work right. very hard for this money at all. And even if you're breaking even now, the resale value you get on your franchise is going to make you and your great, 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 great children never have to worry about money again, where these players have this short window to make money. But I do think the fact that you can put a palpable figure on how much players are making and you kind of 
can't or you can't comprehend it about owners will lead in this big labor battle that's coming up a lot of people to be like, well, I mean, you'd think for $14 million a year, you wouldn't strike out half the time you come to the plate. Or in the NBA, the equivalent of this, nothing makes casual sports fans angrier when someone making millions of dollars misses a free throw. Drives them crazy. Right. Drives them crazy. Because I can hit a free throw. I think that's what kind of messes all this up. And I think it started around this time. It's so crazy to me because you're 1 billion percent correct. Like, it's always about the players. It's never about the owners and what they did or did not do to have the position that they're in. <laughs> but I love the fact that I call the I got next guy makes millions. <laughs> and to me, the, the I got next guy, it's when you go on a basketball court, mm. you ask who's got next, who's got next, no one says anything, you go, I got next. And then your job is to pick the team, right? They're paying the guy who picks the team millions of dollars. And while they might get scrutinized for the decision that they made, they still don't get close to the amount of scrutiny the actual players get for playing the game, which, in my opinion, is a lot harder. If I'm an executive of a team, I can make an argument that I'm better than this executive, but we'll never really know. There's right. not like a metric. Sports are nothing but metrics for players. If you are struggling, everybody knows immediately and says, oh, we could get this person for less and so on. But fans don't see it that way. And I think they've gotten better about it as the years have gotten. They're certainly better than they were in 1988. But I do think there is generally still this idea that like, well, I play these sports for free. And so I can't believe for the money you're making, that's what you're doing. At the end of the day, these are all entertainers, right? So 1989, 1990, top actors like Tom Cruise is making like, what, 10, 15, yeah. sometimes $20 million a movie? $15 million a movie to pretend like he's someone else. <laughs> yeah. And, and we're it, okay with that. Yeah. I mean, you know? and if there's a bad one, it's okay. He'll just make another one. and They won't even sweat it. Right, right, right. Exactly. But heaven forbid, this form of entertainment, they get to make those millions of dollars. Yeah. Like, I don't understand why someone pretending to be someone else is being held as a much more difficult thing than someone who's trying to hit a small ball coming at them at 100 miles an hour in front of tens of thousands of people. You've got acting experience. You tell I me. Which, which is harder? Is it getting into the feelings of a character or is it draining a three-pointer? I'd say the hardest thing is being an actor who's playing someone who's trying to hit a three-pointer. <laughs> smash them together. <laughs> that does seem hard. <laughs> I don't think I can't do either one of those independently, so I guarantee you I cannot do them collectively. All right, LZ, let's close it up. What is your game of the week? Well, my friend, here it is. Oh, no. The day all fans of the Big Ten wait for... Circle, acknowledge before the first kickoff of any season. And that is Illinois Northwestern. No, Michigan, Ohio State. All oh, right, sorry. Right. Michigan, Ohio yes. State. This season, Ohio State's at the big house in Ann Arbor. And I got to tell you, after watching Ohio State run up down near 50 points in one half against Michigan State, the one team that Michigan lost to, I don't think it's looking good. <laughs> for the Wolverines. <laughs> I'm just going to be real with you. <laughs> I don't think this shit going to be good, man. This, it's my game of the week because if Michigan just covers, if Michigan just covers, it'll be the first time since 2017 that they've been able to do that. <laughs> but I'm not even sure they're going to cover. This might be the moment that Jim Harbaugh simply can't overcome because they're 10-1 and 1, 
They win. There's a good chance they'll be in the playoffs for the first time in school history. (laughs) And I just get this feeling in my stomach, man. They're going to go out there and lay a big old egg. And that's when everyone from fans to boosters to reporters is just going to be like, okay, this experiment is over. Get him out. Let's get a different coach in. This cannot continue to be the Lucy and Charlie Brown show. I'm sorry, Michigan fans are so insane. Like, they had this horrible two and four year, and I understood last year being so angry. They went 10 and one. Nobody had them 10 and one at this point heading into the season. If they were in the top 25 heading into the year, it was barely. Here they are in like the top five. This is the best Michigan team of the Harbaugh era. They're well-rounded. They're good. Yes, Ohio State appears to be amazing and may well blow you out. But we're crying out loud. Like this Michigan team is 10 and one. Like this is amazing. Like it's like. You're speaking just like someone from a different school. Yeah. Yeah. Who has perspective. (laughs) Or who has been beaten. Down to the point in which they no longer have high hopes and dreams. Oh, for crying out loud. So it was funny when you started that and you were talking about the day that all, I was like, oh, I know what he's going to say. He's going to say, we are coming up on the day that all Detroit sports fans dread, which is the entire oh, country having to watch the Lions play on Thanksgiving. No, I, all, no, it is, no. I have to say, I have many friends that are Lions fans. I'm fond of the Lions. I, generally speaking, I like the uniforms. I like the fans. They're long beaten down. I always like franchises that, as an Arizona Cardinals fan who have traditionally struggled and I want to see them succeed. The Lions haven't even made a Super Bowl for crying out loud. That feels like something they should be able to make at some point. I always want the Lions to be good. This year, I have to say, I think that they're a little better than their record, which is to say maybe they're 2-8-1 rather than 0-10-1. Oh, uh, but they appear at least have co- felt competent at times. I feel fortunate because the Arizona Cardinals and Detroit Lions seem to play each other every year. I remember growing up like I thinking the Lions were in our division because we played you every <laughs> year because we were always finishing last in our own division. That was the way schedules were set up. But so I, I always felt fortunate that my bad team while bad, did not have to have the entire country watching them on the day where everybody watches football. So my game of the week is the Lions having their year. I don't have the stats in front of me, but it feels as much as the Lions have struggled, it feels like it's probably been a while. I hope it's been a while since they've actually been winless uh, on Thanksgiving. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe someone will correct me, but... I don't remember the last time they were winless other than the 0-16 season. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is, you know... Which, but that was also a thing that happened. Right. So. But, but you know what? I, I don't blame them for that. They took their tanking very seriously that year. Hmm. And they, you know... They, they, they succeeded. <laughs> Should the Lions be removed? No, I, no I'm pro-Lions. I, I'm, I'm from Detroit. I'm a Detroit Lions fan. Yeah. I've been to tons of these Thanksgiving Day games. Sometimes we win them. Sometimes we lose them. The Wayne Fonts years were the best years for these games because he didn't know they were going to win or lose either. And it was kind of like <laughs> everybody was surprised at the end. It was just great time. But now it's just fucking sad. Yeah. Like literally we have a starting quarterback who on another team went to the Super Bowl and he can't even win a single game in the Honolulu Blue. So I'm just asking... Now is the time that like President Biden or or the meteor or something should come in and intervene and stop this from happening. Well, we all get to witness it one more time on Thanksgiving. It is a tradition unlike any other. Uh. My son actually asked me, he's like, wait, so why do the Lions have to play every Thanksgiving? And I get it. I know it's tradition. I support the tradition, but we have definitely reached the point of, we'll just uh, catch the four o'clock game. We'll catch the four o'clock game. You know what else was tradition? Opening the doors for women. Anybody doing that anymore? 
We can make Fair. changes. Fair. We can change. Wait, we're not doing that anymore? No, no wonder I keep getting punched. First off, happy Thanksgiving, LZ. This happy is our, Thanksgiving. our first Thanksgiving. Well, not together, but our first Thanksgiving since we started doing the show. I did not grow up with Thanksgiving as a major holiday in our house. So I've kind of enjoyed, and now my wife's family is really into it. So I get to actually have a Thanksgiving experience. And let's just say I'm also pleased. I, I no longer see cowboys and Indians at school on Thanksgiving and pilgrims. It feels like it's gotten better in that way. We look for progress where we can find it. And I no longer have to worry about my son wearing feathers on Thanksgiving. I feel like that's some sort of positive development. That is. Happy Thanksgiving, Elsie. And happy Thanksgiving to you too, buddy. Gobble, gobble, gobble. And that's our show for the week. Thanks everyone for listening to The Long Game with LZ and Leach. Make sure you subscribe to us on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcast. And we'll be back next Wednesday for a breakdown of the biggest stories of the week. 